and how as we get angry, we don't think that we're murderers, but Jesus says, actually, no, in your anger, you're just as guilty of being a murderer as somebody who's actually killed somebody. And so Jesus is sort of readdressing all of these paradigms. And today, he talks about the one, and I guess why we have more attendance is because he talks about sex and lust. And so I'm guessing, you know, in seventh grade, nobody misses those classes. Um, so anyways, there's this fantasy world that we've created. It's a fantasy world. It's a world that um, our culture has manufactured, that our TV shows have manufactured, that our movies have manufactured, and that the pornography industry has manufactured. It's a world where everyone is beautiful. Everyone's ripped. Everyone's gorgeous. Nobody has body fat in this world. In this world, sex is perfect. Um, there's no prickly legs. There's no bad breath. Everything is extremely pleasure simultaneously. No one's tired. No one gets sick. No one has headaches. It's all fantasy. It's not reality. And in this dream world that our culture has created, one of the things that they've done is they've created this lie that we've bought into, that this is exactly what sex and sexuality should look like. This is what beauty is. This is what beauty looks like. And it's a lie that we buy, we buy into all the time. This dreamland is, um, the Greek word is pornea, and pornea covers uh, sexual immorality. And, and in this dream world, you meet somebody, and the way that you decide whether or not you want to stay with them is you jump in the sack with them, and then if everything works out, then, you know, maybe you guys can start dating. This is that dream world. That, that this industry creates and says, this is how you find love. Well, in this series, one of the things I want to talk about is sin is a corruption of a natural desire. Sin is a corruption of a natural desire. Last week, we talked about anger. And the corruption there is justice. We all have a desire for justice. We want to see justice served. We want to see the right uh, the wrongs righted, we want to see that happen. But when we fire off our anger, justice gets corrupted into this anger that consumes us. And today we're talking about this whole issue of lust and adultery. We all have a natural desire for intimacy with other people, with our spouse, with our partner. We all have that natural desire has been corrupted in our world because our culture has begun to define what sex is and make us numb to the reality of what it really is. We live in a time where eating disorders are on the rise in both men and women because they constantly compare themselves to the world and what is beautiful. Our goal is to turn ourselves into objects of lust and you can see this in the way that people dress and the way that people, um, there's nothing wrong with working out. I work out all the time. There's nothing wrong, by the way, and we're going to talk about this later, with being um, attractive. But seductive is a completely different thing. Sometimes our goal is to turn ourselves into objects of lust, instruments of worship for the king. As I drive on the freeway, I see signs like adult con. Those just came up. And then you see signs for gentlemen's clubs, which ironically, I doubt you'll find any gentlemen there. 
and they've become commonplace in our society. And you know what? We almost don't see them anymore. I, I find myself driving past these and not even noticing them anymore because our culture is so overly sexualized, so overly sexualized that it actually hurts our perception of what is real and it actually hurts our problem. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity was uh, talking about this issue. And he said, or take it another way. You can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is to watch girls undress on the stage. Now suppose you came to a country where you could fill an entire theater by covering a dinner plate and slowly lifting that dinner plate off up, or the, the napkin over the dinner plate, only to reveal a pork chop. And you could get the entire crowd filled. Wouldn't you say that something has gone drastically wrong with that culture's appetite for food? Absolutely. The point that C.S. Lewis is making is that there is something wrong when we could fill entire theaters of people to watch somebody become naked. Something has been corrupted with our natural desire for intimacy. Something has been corrupted. And it's not just a me problem, it's not just a you problem, it's a societal problem. Because as a society, we kind of buy into these lies. There's lies that our society tells us all the time, and we just agree with them. We don't necessarily mean to, but we don't know how to disagree. So now we live in this world where lust and making our bodies objects of attention and even worship are commonplace and common practice. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was talking about his life, life in the kingdom. And um, there was these prevailing ideas that were around when Jesus spoke. People had different thoughts, cultural ideas, just like we have cultural ideas. And one of the things that the Pharisees were trying to do, and we're going to dig right into this in a second, is the Pharisees were trying to tell the people uh, just about what, you know, the, the, the seventh commandment, you should not commit adultery. So here's what he says, Matthew 5, we're going to be in Matthew 5 for a little bit here, 27, um, just verse 27. You have heard what is said, do not commit adultery. And again, that's Exodus uh, twenty fourteen. he's simply quoting the ten commandments here, um, do not, you shall not commit adultery. And adultery is having sex with somebody other than your spouse. And, and actually, at that time, the rabbis and the teachers of the law were absolutely teaching this. And they were very strict on this. This was a big deal. But the problem was that it wasn't universally applied. Because men were in power in society. And when um, men are in power in the society, and especially this society, they tended to only bring women to justice. And it became, more often than not, if somebody was caught in adultery, just the woman would show up. But, and Jesus even addressed that in John chapter 8. Just the woman would show up, but even when the entire Bible says, bring, uh, the Old Testament says, bring both the man and the woman caught in adultery. And so this was agreed upon, but the way it was practiced was not necessarily right. Um... So what Jesus, he, Jesus goes on and says in verse 28, he says, but I tell you, he diagnoses this vicious cycle. He talks about this cycle of lust and adultery, lust and adultery. He says, but I tell you, in verse 28, if any of you, I'm sorry, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what does it mean to look at somebody lustfully? The 10th commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, 
his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word lust here is ethriamayo. Ethri, I don't know. I'm not a Greek major, but it's something like that. Let me take it from me. I looked it up. Um, and it doesn't really matter. It, it means to own something. Lust means to covet or to own, to want to take possession of. You remember a noun is a person, place, or a thing. As in our humanity, in the fact that we've been created by God, in the fact that God has breathed life into us, and in the fact that God has created us from the dust of the ground, the fact that God has every single hair on our head numbered, we have intrinsic value as humans. Just because you're human, you have value and dignity. And lust treats somebody else as less than human. It treats them as a thing or an object. We, che- we treat them um, less than human when we lust at it for them because what in your lust, in what Jesus is talking about, this word lust, the way it's used in their culture means to take possession or ownership. And possession or ownership of people was never meant to happen. A, lot, a long time ago um, in the 1800s and even before that, people would look and the Bible, and they would look at the verses that say, slaves, be obedient to your masters. And they would look at that and say, you know what? No, the Bible says that you could own people. That's, that's a correct thing. We obviously know, and people knew back then, that that's not at all what the Bible was saying. The Bible was simply talking to people in the context of slavery, not saying you're allowed to be uh, slaves and have slavery. And so, this issue of coveting is really begins to be a value of taking dignity away from humanity. When you lust after somebody else, you're saying that they're an object to be conquered rather than a person that can be loved. An object to be conquered rather than a human. And actually when you lust, and, and lust in this context, it actually does a few different things. One, it says you're an object. Two, it says you're less than human. But three, it says that you deserve my worship, which is an interesting way to look at this. Worship, lust is worship. Because the most primitive, the most basic form of worship is what do you give your attention to, right? If you give your attention to Jesus, guess what your life is going to be about? Jesus, right? If you give your attention, I mean, it's absolutely right to give your attention to your wife and to your family and things like that. But if you give yourself over to lust, it really can become a form of worshiping a body rather than worshiping God. And so now we see that this is actually two competing things, worshiping God or worshiping bodies. So let's get back to this idea of something's wrong with our sexual appetite as a culture. The danger of uh, this uh, lust is that it it gets formalized and and codified in TV and movies and advertising. And it's not just um, that it's, it's a sin, but it crosses the line of idolatry, is what lust does. We think of paganism as worshiping false gods, and people setting up poles and sacrificing goats and cattle. But isn't it just as much paganism to worship a person than it was to worship um, all these other false gods? I think so. 
And I think that this is what Jesus was beginning to even touch on in all of this. Remember in Romans 12, 1, 2, or verse 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy, this is your true and proper worship. What we do with our bodies is worship. And, and, and who is it that we worship? When we desire to look like objects of lust, then what does that say? Do we want people to worship us? Or when we look at other people as objects of lust, who does that say that we worship? Our society's appetite is so skewed that um, it is totally normal and, and even trivial to watch people get undressed on a movie. It's just sort of trivial. It's like at, at times, you know, you're watching a TV show and even on, on cable TV, these things pop up and, and you go, oh, wow. I mean, and you don't even notice it anymore, you know, it, because it's become such a common place in our culture. And one of the problems is that we've mistaken being attractive for being seductive. Like I said earlier in the message, when we mistake attractiveness for seductiveness, then we're going to get lust. And our culture, especially young ladies in our culture, have bought into this because of magazines, because of what our culture says and advertising and all that says is beautiful. And then men buy into this too and say, yeah, that's beautiful. But then we see people, and being in youth ministry, I dealt with this all the time. It's okay to be attractive. But when you begin to dress seductively, it's why I don't wear a tank top when I preach, because I don't want any sin happening in the room. There's really no muscles under there. I joke. I joke because there's no muscles under there. I don't work out upper body at all. Except for my kids, lifting them up. But my, my point on this is why, why do we do this? Because there's something alive within us, deep within us, that sometimes makes us compete with God for worship. We want to be the center of attention. We want everybody looking at us. Let me give you an amazing insight. If you have junior hires or if you've ever been a junior hire, this is a great insight that I learned in junior high ministry. I was serving on a campus. Everybody in junior high, everybody, thinks that you're looking at them. The entire school, everybody thinks that you're looking at them. And sometimes I, I think that I've, I've met adults that think that as well. And so therefore, like everything is, is exactly right because they just believe that everybody's looking at them all the time. And, and, and that's what um, these junior hires, any junior high campus you step onto, I can guarantee you that like 95% of that school, if you were to go around and ask them, um, where do you think, do you think people see you right now? Most people would say, everybody's looking at me. Are you kidding? Because we've gone and asked that question to junior hires before, and it's just amazing the way that comes out. But my, my point is, when we have these thoughts that everybody's looking at me, then we begin to act and live a certain way. That's why, I'm sorry, are any of you guys junior hires here today? You'll be crazy for three years, and then you won't be crazy anymore. I was crazy for three years. It's just, it just happens. Anyways, <laughs> I think the question is, 
why do I want people paying attention to me? Why do I want people's attention? Is it because I can be an object of lust for people? I mean, I, there's, to a certain extent, I want people's attention on Sunday morning. I mean, because I want to teach the Bible and make God known. That's my entire purpose in life. And that's why I want people's attention there. But I think sometimes we need to ask the question, is it for God's glory or is it for my glory that we get people's attention? Let's keep going to verse 29. And this is probably the best part, and our ushers will be passing out spoons and hacksaws. I'm just kidding. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your eye, one part of your body, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Before the third century, there was this huge question about whether or not Jesus met this as hyperbole or, or just something as an example. And, and he absolutely did, because he gives us in another setting when he's talking about sin in, in the book of Mark. And he talks about this really as dealing with sin, as casting it out of your life. There were people like Origen who actually castrated himself because he didn't feel like he could overcome his physical desires. So he thought that he would uh, physically remove some of his sexual desires. But in 300 AD, Council of Nicaea, they said, that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus did not mean to physically cut your hands off if you can't control yourself. Jesus was not advocating self-mutilation. He was advocating ruthless self-denial. Self-denial. He meant taking drastic measures to ensure that you do not engage in lustful or sinful thoughts. If you know this struggle of lustful and, and, and sinful thought, it goes through your mind and it actually begins to get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's more like the snowball effect. Or it could even, I think even a better example is this iceberg. And you only see it in people's lives in just a little tip and what they say, but really there's a whole storm brewing beneath. There's a whole lot more to it. And so Jesus talks this way to remove parts of your body. He doesn't physically mean to remove parts of your body. What he means is go so far away from this stuff that it does not captivate your mind. It's not necessarily about putting software on your computer or about accountability groups, although those are very important tools. But you know what? In our culture today, like I, I sometimes, when we do these emails, these weekly emails, you have to Google images sometimes to put them up. Like I Googled men's breakfast one time, and it's like there's a picture of a naked person that popped up. And you're like, what are, what's going on here? But if you're stuck in that world and in that culture of pornography, and all it takes is to see that one image for the entire bottom of that iceberg to come back into your life. All it takes is that one time, that one image. So we need something greater than accountability groups. We need, we need something greater than protective software, but we need protective software, especially men. You need that. We need something greater than that. The idea of gouging out your eyes and cutting your hands off means that that part of you that gets aroused, that gets turned on, that turns people into objects, actually needs to die on the cross of Jesus. That we need to lay that down. No matter how good a protection that you have on your computer, 
you'll do a search for like sunsets or something. Totally harmless and something will pop up. Here's what Paul said about sinful thought. 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So the idea is when this picture comes up, when you least expected it, what do you feel? If you take every thought captive, then maybe what you'll feel is sad and compassion for the person in that image rather than lust. Maybe if you train yourself to pray for the person that is seen as an object of lust, maybe you'll change too. Um, I, cognitive scientists have started to teach and in, um, in some psychiatry settings have started to teach some things. And, and um, I'm not a psychiatrist, so, so don't say, well, Pastor Dave just said to do this and it's all right. But they started to teach some of this stuff that's really consistent with the Bible. They started to teach that if you have negative thoughts that come up in your subconscious and in your mind, that what you need to do is take that thought, figure out why it's there, and say, that doesn't define me anymore. That's not me. And basically, take every thought captive. Hmm, I wonder who figured that out. Paul did in his teaching. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. What does that look like in the context of lust? What does that look like in the context of sexuality? It means that when these thoughts come up, we need to retrain ourselves. When these images pop up out of nowhere, when people walk by and your mind goes racing and wandering, we need to retrain our minds. Because actually these scientists tell us that if you do that enough, these thoughts will completely go away and you'll have freedom from that. And that's what these uh, cognitive scientists and, and therapists say. That if you retrain the way that you think and the images that pop up in your brain. And that's exactly what Paul was telling us to do, was it not? Paul was simply saying, take these thoughts and make them captive, make them obedient to Christ. So when they come up, pray. Jesus, be with that person. Jesus, remove any of these desires from my heart. God, change me in this process. Jesus was all about breaking these vicious cycles. And so when he's using this language of gouge out your eyes and cut off your hand, he's simply saying it needs to be more drastic than just having a guy's accountability group, although those are great. And if you don't, if you're not in accountability, that's one of the best ways, one of the best ways to stay solid in, in your relationship with Christ, whether it's with your wife or a friend, somebody safe that you could talk to. Because in confession, shame cannot exist. In confession, that's actually something you should write down if you're taking notes. In your confession, when you confess it and get it out there, shame cannot exist in the darkest, deepest parts of your heart when it's out there. There's nowhere for shame to, to, to invade. And in our shame, we begin to do things like buy into the lie that if you looked at pornography, then you're just damaged goods. And that God has this vision for our lives. You know, God has this vision that we would live in his kingdom and be his people and, and really live and work with him in his kingdom. And that we would bring about change in our community, that the, the foundations of our community would be utterly changed because of Neighborhood Christian Fellowship, because we're here that all of this would change. And in our shame, that stuff, we, we just trade that in. 
and we say, well, I guess I'm not worthy anymore to be God's servant, or I guess I'm not really, uh, that ministry I wanted to lead, I, I don't think I'm worthy of doing that anymore. Or you know what, going to church on a regular basis, I just, we begin to buy into these lies that shame tells us that we can't do it. And that we're not worthy of doing it. In fact, that you shouldn't do it because, because there's somebody even better qualified than you to be in God's kingdom. But you can't do it. So these psychologists take us, tell us basically to rebuke our thoughts. In the name of, well, they don't say in the name of Jesus, but I would say rebuke your thoughts in the name of Jesus. When they come up, that's one of the only ways that you'll find victory over this. That and... You know, it's a drastic measure to throw a computer away, but maybe that's what needs to happen. It's a drastic measure to, to have somebody get an email of all the websites that you've been on this last week, but maybe that's an option. Accountability is great when it's mixed with your desire to get rid of it. Any sin. Accountability is great, but if you're still like, I'm just going to find a way around that accountability, guess what you're still going to do? You're still going to fall into this temptation this corruption and this natural desire. God, I really believe, and we talked about this in our series in September, God wants us to have sex with our spouses and wants us to have great sexual relationships with our spouse. God absolutely wants that for us. God created us as beings that have pleasure. And there's some, the main purpose for some parts is simply pleasure. God created it that way and he called it good. But in the corruption of this, we buy into these lies that people are less than people, that people are simply objects. And what remains in our lives is something extremely strong and hard to dig out of. Guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. When there's sexual sin, there's this feeling of shame in a feeling of shame, then we actually move into the next area of life, which is powerlessness. In our shame, we could do nothing. When you feel like that, then you buy into the lie that you're not worthy of God's love. And, and that, really, that lie really begins to sound like the truth. I think that sexual temptation and lust are a topic that Jesus was so passionate about because he knows that that's what the enemy uses to drag us down. He knows that guilt, your guilt, is ultimately more powerful than, than anything else. We can topple ourselves far easier than Satan can by just feeling guilty and feeling powerless and feeling paralyzed by our guilt and our shame. And so many of us know that reality so well. We've been there. We've felt that. We've walked through that area of life to feel the guilt and the shame Due to sexual sin. But I think the even greater gouging out the eyes and cutting off the hands is overcoming that guilt and shame and getting to the point to where when that does pop up in your life, when sin does present itself, you know A, to flee, because the Bible says flee from sexual morality, but two, to pray for that person. Because that person is a person beautifully made by God. Every hair on their head is numbered. And the, the statistics say that, uh, that 95 to 
of women in the pornography industry have been sexually abused or raped as a child. 95 to 100%. There's almost like, and and these are just surveys that people take while talking because there's no official scientific study on that. But they're, they're caught up in this because of their own hurt and abuse as children, and they don't think that they're worthy. And they know this is the way to become worthy. And sometimes we get caught up in that too, and we say, how do we feel worthy? And we get caught up in sexual sin because it makes us feel worthy. I honestly think, as I've been looking through all this today and, and this week, one of the things I was going to teach on was how do we just block all this stuff in our lives, build walls around it? But the reality is sin can get through those walls because it lives sometimes in our mind. And so what we really need to do is learn to give God our guilt because Jesus actually doesn't want to just forgive your sin. Because sometimes our sin, you know, uh, symbolically we say, okay, our sin is taken away. God, we give our sin to you, but what remains is the guilt of what we had done. And that puts us into more powerlessness than you can ever imagine. It creates body image issues. It creates lust issues. All that sin still stays there in your mind. And you keep going, God, please forgive, please forgive, please forgive. And you say it over and over and over and over and over and over again. God heard you the first time. He's not deaf. But God wants to forgive your guilt because that's what's calling out to God. The guilt in your life calls out to God far more than the sin. Solemn 2 verse 5 says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did, and did not cover up my iniquity. I want to stop right there for a second. I did not cover up my iniquity. Remember what I said about shame and guilt? They cannot exist when confessed. When, brought those to, when those are brought to light, shame and guilt cannot live in your life. The only way to bring about wholeness and restoration is confession. That's why Jesus says, confess your sins. That's why there's such a big ordeal about this in the Bible. Confess your sins to one another because when you confess your sins to one another, this shame and guilt cannot last in your life. And then it says, and I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 32, 5. When confessed, you forgave the guilt of my sin. God wants to get us to a point in our lives where when sexual temptation comes up, I mean, Jesus calls this adultery just as much as as having sex with somebody who's not your spouse. Jesus calls lust adultery. And this is something that's far more of a problem and far more prolific than the actual physical act of adultery. Confess that to God. Confession brings freedom. Confession brings freedom. And this is something that you want to do to God. And then if you, honestly, if you've hurt your spouse in this way, this is something you want to confess your spouse in a safe, private way. This is something you want to confess to your spouse and ask them to hold you accountable. I, sometimes I even wonder, do, do we not realize that God gives us freedom from this? Sometimes we just go around and say, if we just build up all these barriers to my life, then sin can't get through. And the reality is it's right in there the whole time. Studies show that 
men, especially men, because men are visual, will never forget the pornographic images that they've seen. So we need something to cover that. We need an atonement. We need something like the blood of Christ to cover that and redeem those images in our head so that even in our darkest time, if those images continue to pop up, we get on our knees and pray for that person of which the image is. We get on our knees and pray for our relationship with our spouse, and we ask God to help us overcome that guilt and shame. Psalm 51, 12, and I think this is the real issue here. It says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I think this is the real issue. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uh, Why is that the real issue in this issue of sin and lust and adultery and sex and all that stuff? Why is this the real issue? Because in our guilt and shame, the joy in our salvation could be a billion miles away. And I think that even if you've ever been caught up in that, if sexual sin has ever been knocking at your door, then I think one of the things that we need to pray here today is, God, I'm going to just confess all this stuff to you. And two, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because when I'm caught in my guilt and when I'm caught in in all that junk, there's nothing that resembles joy in that picture. Nothing that resembles the forgiveness of the Savior. There's nothing that resembles being clean because we're stuck in guilt. If you're here today and you regularly lust, as a part of taking every thought captive, I want to urge you to go back and confess the to simply take time by yourself and confess that to God. God, I am a person who lusts, who looks at people like objects. I'm a person who wants to, who, who just does this, and I'm, I don't know why, and I'm sinful, but and then I want to urge you to confess to take the guilt away. Because the only way to break this vicious cycle, I mean, because um, corruptions of natural desires are going to come into our lives whether we like it or not. But this is actually something that we call holiness. Holiness is living a life so close to God that the thought of pornography, that the thought of these images really break your heart more than anything else. The thought of getting anger so enraged that you would actually act on that or do something about that actually changes. Holiness is getting closer to God with your life. Uh, About a year ago, I gave a sermon where we talked about a lamp and a cell phone. And a lot of times, this is what we do with our lives. We we have this lamp that's plugged in, and and we turn it on, and um, that's the purpose of the lamp. That's what it does. It cannot exist if it disconnected, if you disconnect it from its power source. But a lot of times we try and act as cell phone people. We take our cell phones, our iPads, wherever, we charge it on up for the day. And we go out and, 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 and we're good for about a week. And we got to come back in and charge it back up. And then we treat church like charging up our batteries. Sometimes we do this with God, right? We read our Bibles when it's up there on the screen or we read our Bibles when somebody conveniently posts it on Facebook. But we don't get close to God. Because when you get close to God, breaking these issues is so much easier. Because then you can confess them and find true forgiveness from guilt. 
Today, I just want to simply urge us and simply just ask you, would you do that? Would you simply give God what it is that's so consuming your life? Whether it's, whether it's this guilt of lust and sexual immorality, whether it's this guilt that you have from anger, whether it's this guilt that you have from snubbing somebody a few years back or saying something dumb, would you simply go be reconciled and give that to God? Because you'll never have true freedom in your life without that. I want to urge you to just lay it all down at the feet of Jesus. We're going to end in worship here. I'm just going to pray. And I just would um, continually ask that we pray, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Father, lust is a painful issue. For a number of people at first, it's something that's fun, something that's that's secretive. But God, our guilt and our shame tend to consume us to a point to where we find it hard to even exist anymore. So Lord, I pray that we would give you that guilt and shame. And God, that you would remove that as far as from the east is to the west. God, we know your love is greater than even the heavens. So God, we give all this to you and ask that you restore unto us the joy of your salvation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.